Welcome to the Flaps Podcast. Christmas comes but once a year, and so does the Christmas Flaps Podcast. And with our track record, you're lucky to get this before the end of January. Mm. Uh, But you've all been good boys and girls, so we've got our skates on, and we're here nice and early with the Christmas 2011 podcast. In this bulging sack of an edition, we report from the flying show at the NEC. You'll hear from a brand new Spitfire squadron. We are negotiating with the RAF at the moment because they're a bit short of aeroplanes. You know, we might get called up. And some kids who are building a plane at school. We're building a twin-seater run six. We're halfway through building it and it's ready to fly next year. We speak to the author of a new book about the Nimrod, Britain's marine patrol aircraft that was scrapped earlier this year. If you're sick of turkey, arguing with the family and the smell of Brussels sprouts, why not go for a flight on New Year's Day? We'll tell you where. We've also got some ideas for flying gifts that you might want to drop hints for. GPS! (coughs) You all right? Expensive GPS! (coughs) That's a nasty cough you've got there, Elliot. Really expensive GPS (coughs) and a leather case! (coughs) That's a shocking cold. Hope you get better soon. Yeah, thanks. We've also got our biggest celebrity pilot yet. Keep listening to find out who. At the end of November, the flying show took place at the NEC near Birmingham. Attendance was well up this year, but still not everyone could go, so we thought the least we could do is bring the show to you. And we're here with one of the organisers of the show this year, Ian Waller, the editor of Flyer magazine. Hello. It's a great show. It's good, isn't it? Yeah, this show's beginning to really establish itself now up here at the NEC. Um, we've actually managed to get quite a lot of extra exhibitors in this year, with obviously with the BMAA who we're working closely with. There's a really good vibe about the place. A lot of people here, some real big news. Yeah, we, we, we came last year and it definitely seems a bigger, uh, dare I say it, better show and, and busier. I think it's certainly busier. I mean, last year they had the snow. We had a lot of snow around, held a lot of people away. Obviously, we've not got that problem this year, hopefully. Um, and yeah, now it's a good, healthy crowd coming through and a lot of people coming up and chatting already. Uh, what are the highlights for you this year? The highlights, I think, would be uh, having David Sykes here who a lot of people will know is the paraplegic pilot that flew his microlite to uh, Australia. Amazing job to do. He's here up on the flyer stand uh, with his book. And also PNM Aviation have uh, launched their Pulsar microlite here at the show. And that's going to be very exciting. We'll be flight testing that very soon in Flyer Magazine. And uh, I think really it's just getting a feel for what's happening at the light end of aviation. The, uh, the trail is always an exciting aircraft. 30 grand all up, go and fly it. Got to build it, but it's a smashing little two-seater. The Eurofox, another really nice little two-seater. Well, it looks great. Elliot and I will go and explore and speak to some of the people. Ian Waller from Flyer, nice to meet you. Thank you very much. Uh, we're on the breezer stand now with uh, with Russ, who's their senior test pilot. Would that be right? I'm not sure about test pilot. Se- senior demo pilot. Demo pilot. Yeah, you uh, say test pilot. You, I expect more bumps and bruises uh, and missing exactly, limbs. Yeah. But no, you're all in one piece. I can report that. <laughs> so this is this is a, a light sport aircraft. Yeah, an LSA. It is. Yeah, it's a light sport aircraft. Uh, all metal. Made in Germany, in fact. So, ah. it's, uh, and, it's and they, they know a thing or two about making stuff, don't they? The they Germans. Do. Yeah, it's uh, engineering-wise, it's absolutely excellent, top-notch, very, very high build quality. Vorsprung Dirk Breezer. Oh well, yeah, we might even use that. Oh, there we are. You can have that. I think yeah. you might you might have a bit of a, like a copyright yeah. issue with that, but I'll give it a go. So, I mean, how how long have, has this been available in this country? Uh, we started selling them actually in anger, as it were, uh, the year before last. We kind of started talking to the factory, but started representing them last year, and we bought our demonstrator at the uh, back end of last year. So uh, we've we've been involved about a year, but the aeroplane's been around for about ten years. 
And well, how, how does it come? Is it a kit or is it? Does it come? Uh, really it built was originally or? available as a kit um, back in Germany, back late nineties, early sort of two thousands. And there's about 140, 150 of them flying, something like that. Um, but it's recently become more available as a factory build aircraft, and they're kind of shying away from the kit stuff now. So it's it's available as a microlight in in uh, Germany as well as an LSA. Um, and in fact, the microlight one's been very popular in flying schools over there. So, and what's it comparable to to fly? Um, Concorde, uh, <laughs> Hunters, uh, Spitfire. No, oh, it, genuinely, it's it's a very it's it's a uh, it's kind of like anything else in the LSA category. You have got 100 horsepower, very frugal, very frugal kind of um, performance in terms of fuel burn. Uh, very nice handling. It's very easy to fly uh, in and out of short fields. Is, is no problem at all. It handles grass strips and you know tarmac as well as anything else. So it's, uh, well, well, I'm approved. sold. We'll we'll buy one. Excellent. Okay. So, so yeah. how much? Uh, they started about eighty thousand euros, which today. I worked out was just under £70,000 up to as much as you want to spend and depends how much kit you throw at it oh well we'll have, we'll have two actually one for me and Mark <laughs> and we'll have a receipt so we can put it through the company is that absolutely right? yeah Fabulous. I agree with that no problem at all okay now chatting to uh, Dave and Amanda Lord from WannaFly Air Sports now you're based in France aren't you guys yes we are and, uh, and the, the, the big move was because of the weather mainly now you, you operate a training organisation out there. People from the UK can come and learn to fly in France, can't they? That's correct, yes. What's the, what's the purpose of that? What's the benefit in doing that? Uh, the benefit for us is uh, continuity of training because of the weather, as I've just said. Um, the other thing as well is that we've, we bought a large farm. The runway's in the back garden, so we've not got to travel to and from the airfield. Um, and yeah, it's just that continuity and having the student with me all day. We probably find 300 days on average per year is flyable. Um, especially with the Michael Light category as well. Now obviously you guys could fly before you went to France, so from, from a pilot's perspective, what's it like flying in, in French airspace compared to British? Uh, it's a little bit easier, I mean more often than not we stay out of controlled airspace and, and we've got a lot of uncontrolled airspace. Above the farm we got up to 4,000 feet, six minutes away we're up to 10,000 feet without having to speak to anybody. And then you go off to, uh, to other airfields, which are these great munis municipal uh, airfields, and there's nobody there. So we can, uh, we, we can go on different strip uh, in length, short lengths, large lengths, uh, so we can, we can get quite a variety. Uh, Amanda, what kind of aircraft is it people come and learn in? We've got a Skyranger 912 and we've just taken on a quick R, 912S. So, so you've actually got, got a fleet. and fixed wing, oh, yeah, you've got, you've got a, on both You've types. got a fleet of aircraft <laughs> and a runway, brilliant. And a runway in the back garden, we're very lucky. <laughs> just, one, just one question away from the flying, where's the wine and cheese? That's in the farmhouse, that's what I do, I look after everybody, I'm chief cook and bottle washer. <laughs> Why haven't you brought the wine and cheese to the show though? Uh, you have to buy it off the show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, we're on the, uh, the gyrocopter experience now with Phil Harwood. Phil, wh what do you do exactly? I have two roles. Yeah. First of all, I run a commercial business called the Gyrocopter Experience, which is flying schools throughout the UK. But I'm also chairman of the British Rotorcraft Association at the stand at the end. And what that is, is the body of members that liaise with the CAA. So I've got an, like, an official capacity to work with the CAA on gyros, but a commercial one where I teach people to fly. So you're a very important man, Phil, I think it's well, fair to say. Well, I'll let you say that, I'm not. <laughs> we're, we're actually stood by some gyrocopters at the moment. They are kind of sexy looking beasts. I'll be honest, I don't really understand them. How, the, how do they work? Phil? All right, okay, so they look a bit like a helicopter. Yeah. Uh, but there's but no, not, en they? no, there's no engine turning the rotors. The rotors turn purely by airflow. Think about it, if we are moving forward and our rotors tilt back, then the same way as if you blew in a kiddie's windmill, the wind yeah. turns the rotors, well, that's what happens to us. However, 
When we're flying, we do not have to think about rotor speed. We never speed them up. We never slow down. They just work. And you get lift from the rotor. We get lift yeah. from the rotors once they're spinning. Okay, and it's and it, but you, if you're coming from a fixed wing plane, is it a similar kind of experience? Very, it's very similar to a tail dragger uh, for a takeoff technique. So we find that people that convert the best or the quickest are the people who can fly fixed wing. In the air, the controls are identical to a fixed wing aircraft. And if people want to have a go at the, the gyrocopter experience, you've got centres all over the place. We've got um, six centres right down in the south, right from Devon, right up now into Scotland, up at Perth. We've just opened up and we expect to open up about two outlets a year. It takes about a year to train instructors. And one of the things that we bring to the party is we help people through their training and then we help them run the business because there's a lot more to running a flying school than actually just running the business, the flying side of it. I guess you've got a website as well www.gyrocopterexperience.com or just type gyrocopter into Google we spend a lot of money getting it number one <laughs> he, you know, he's very good Phil just before we did this interview he's rounded up about 500 people and got them all onto his stand he's the king of, uh, of business Phil it's good to speak to you thanks very much alright enjoy the show okay well we're now joined uh, by uh, Paul Fowler who's the skipper of Enston Flying Club Paul some people try to build aircraft you're trying to build a squadron. Tell us what it's all about. Well, the idea was to get more people involved in flying. And uh, what better way than creating a squadron of Spitfires? I mean, every pilot I've ever met wants to fly a Spitfire. But very few of them are lucky enough or skilled enough to actually fly one. You know, it's, a, it's an elite bunch. A squadron of Spitfires. Now that really is some ambition. How are you going to do this? Well, we're syndicating each aircraft uh, with up to 20 um, shareholders and that makes it much more affordable and it also gives um, many more opportunities for people to get involved. Plus it makes the build time uh, much shorter because we've got 12 instead of 1. And you know the average build time of a, a kit-built aeroplane is anything between 6 and 12 years. And I worked out that if I had 12 people it should only take a year and we could, we're doing it much quicker. Now we're stood next to, is this the first one here? This is kit 73, our first 90% um, scale kit. Uh, the reason it's 90% scale is for, for two reasons. One is that a full-size Spitfire weighs three tonnes and is you need a crew to look after it. 90% uh, scale makes it handleable by one person. And will one person fit into this, or is it going to be 90% of a person? Because, to be honest, looking at a few people here, some people are more than one person in size. Well, I can't imagine what you're saying. <laughs> um, yeah, there's, it's actually a big cockpit. It's actually physically bigger than the real 100% scale, because um, there's a lot less kit in it. Will it have guns as well? Uh, we'll have replica guns on the front. Um, and, you know, we are negotiating with the RAF at the moment, because they're a bit short of aeroplanes, so... You know, we might get uh, called up. Now, what um, what kind of engine will sit in the front of one of these? Uh, it'll be a V6 250 horsepower engine with a reduction gear um, belt drive on the front, uh, made by Isuzu. You can't have a Japanese engine in a replica British plane. Well, don't tell anybody, but the props from Germany. Churchill's turning his grave, I can hear him now. Uh, yeah, but um, Alex Henshaw reckons that we'll keep the Spitfire flying for the next uh, 50 to 100 years. Now, something very unexpected to see here at the flying show at the NEC is uh, a schools build a plane challenge. Here, we're joined by uh, Chalita, Jamie and Mary, who's the head of design and technology at uh, Urkel Wood College. Hi, guys. 
Hello. Now, what is it that uh, you're doing? Well, building a plane, obviously, stupid question. What are you building and why? Well, we're building a twin-seater Rand 6, and it's we're proud to be as on that we're one of the third schools across the country to be promoted by Boeing. I've got to say, I'm very impressed, because when I was at school, we built... Well, if we built a, a plane, it was out of balsa and it was about a foot long, and you're doing a real thing. <laughs> yeah, we are, actually. We're halfway through building it, and it's ready to fly next year. Do any of you want to be pilots? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to get a pilot licence, but I'm not into that. And who's going to fly this? Because obviously once it's built, there's no point in a plane on the ground. Who's going to fly it? Well, a pilot's going to fly it, but we don't know who yet. We're uh, getting it to go to CrossFit for the air show, and then flying it in CrossFit as well. Well, well, we're pilots and we don't have an aeroplane, so we could find a home for it if, if, if you're willing to donate it to us. No. Well, um, I don't know. We'll, we'll, ask, we'll, ask the, we'll ask your uh, head of D&T here, Mary. So, how is it going? It's going extremely well. The idea is not only learning skills, it's also for them to learn how to work with other people. We have engineers coming in from RAF Cosford, volunteers, and the build is going well and they get to come to other things like this. Well, look, when you've built this one and you've got really good at it, we'll put our request in for ours, OK? Is that, is that a deal, Chili? Yeah, that's a deal. OK, we're with uh, Russ Stein now from Stein Financial, specialising in insurance for pilots. Indeed, indeed. Well, we're not, listen, we're here at the flying show to talk about flying. We're not going to talk too much about insurance, because yeah. as fascinating as it is, Russ, but we'd like to know more about your Arctic adventure, because you're a flyer yourself, aren't you, of course? That's right, yeah. I've been flying for about 20 years, and... Uh, Beginning of July, myself and uh, a good friend, Martin Trainer, we, we took a microlight right up to Sweden's Lapland. Wow. And how was it? Was it cold? Um, surprisingly not. It was uh, in the mid-70s by the time we got to the top, <laughs> which is, uh, was a, a surprise to us as well. And what were the problems? Because, uh, you know, obviously it's two of you in a small aircraft. Were there, were there any particular challenges? Well, you're limited by the weight of the aircraft. 450 kilograms is not an awful lot to allow for the aircraft fuel to two of us plus uh, stuff that we'll need during the journey so that was uh, a challenge we had to be very careful on you know how much weight was put into the airplane it also meant very regular stops for refueling you didn't take many clean clothes then i guess i think it was a pair of pants each and a t-shirt <laughs> i bet you smelled lovely by the time you got back <laughs> so we've been told <laughs> And obviously this is the Christmas edition and you were in Lapland. Did you, did you see the, the big fella with the beard? Just one slight problem, yeah. We were in Lapland in July and it was light 24 hours Yeah, but a day. he's still up there making the presents <laughs> with his little helpers. Well, no, no such joy. We, we tried to hunt him out, but we nah, saw some reindeer. Though. You've obviously not been a good enough boy. That's what it is, Russ. You'd have seen him if you'd been good. Oh, well, we'll have to, we'll have to go again in a couple of months' time. Well, listen, it's great to meet you and uh, thanks for talking to us and good luck with your next trip. Been a pleasure. Flaps. Climbing where others descend. Earlier this year, the British government scrapped the Nimrod, which was arguably the world's best reconnaissance aircraft. Now, a new book's just been published called Nimrod Rise and Fall. It's been written by a chap called Tony Blackman. Eh, uh, good morning, Tony Blackburn. Eh, uh, no, sensational. No, no, Tony Blackman. Oh. Sorry. Who sorry. was there at the beginning of the Nimrod project. He test flew nearly every aircraft and was at RAF Kinloss on the day the aircraft was cancelled. you sure he's never worked for Radio 1? Yes. He's okay. on the line now. Hello, Tony. Hello there. Um, it, it is, can I just say, a beautifully produced book. And I'm not just saying that because we're talking to you, but there are some, some amazing photos of a, of a really lovely aircraft and a fascinating read as well. I was very lucky to get all these pictures and it's been really, as you said, delightfully produced. It really is a, a pleasure to look at. 
I think even if you only have a, a passing interest in the Nimrod, it's one of those books that it, it's it's you know it's, it's interesting to the man in the street rather than just the aviation enthusiast. Yes, well, of course, I wrote the book for the man in the street. Um, I wanted people to appreciate all the things the Nimrod did. So much of it, of course, was covered by security, and people didn't realise that a lot of the uh, things like when drug runners were discovered, they were only discovered because of the Nimrod. You hear about the customs and the Navy intercepting these boats, but what people didn't realise was the Nimrod had been tracking tracking the the drug runners for hours or even days before, before they were discovered. Well, you're talking there about one of the roles of the Nimrod. So let's go right back to basics, Tony. Uh, what What is the Nimrod? What was the Nimrod? Well, of course, it was primarily an anti-submarine aircraft, but it, uh, but it was more than that, of course, because it had search and rescue. Because we do have, and we still have, um, a commitment to, to for search and rescue out to 30 degrees west of the Atlantic, which, of course, we can no longer fulfil. But the aircraft, it tracked submarines, not only missile submarines, but also attack submarines to protect our own submarines. That was a very important role. And of course, search and rescue. And in search and rescue, there are two two things that the aircraft did. It carried dinghies so it could drop dinghies, but also when there was a disaster like Piper Alpha, um, it acted rather like a an on-the-spot air traffic control so it control all the resources uh, like the helicopters and, and the boats and and direct these rescue services to the spots where they were needed it was really uh, as i said it was just like air traffic control very versatile as well wasn't it it fulfilled lots of roles and a real workhorse when, when was it first commissioned tony well um if i may say so i was uh, at actually avros when we bid for the program um back in the 60s and we won the program in in 1965 and we delivered the aircraft in 19 the first one 1969 and it was the first really big fixed price contract and we delivered the aircraft on time and on budget which in these days is really a remarkable achievement so what was your involvement with it then i mean you you flew these obviously well obviously once we'd won the contract i flew most of them but i've never had any um, operational experience uh, unfortunately i'd love to have done that I, and when i wrote the book it was a wonderful learning experience for me i did operate the aircraft flew it at farnborough which in some ways was similar to uh, close attack on submarines using the magnetic anomaly detector and the aircraft was a delight to fly um, low level uh, and it worked very well. I never realised until I saw the one in Manchester that it had a nuclear capability at the tactical navigator's station and uh, in in the, the pilot's seat there's a like a switch both of them have a, a nuclear consent switch which obviously both have to, to press at the same time to, to let it go but I, I never realised that it could carry nuclear weapons. Well, to be honest, I didn't until I started researching the book. It was an American weapon, in fact. But um, I, it's, the whole problem on writing this book was <laughs> was the security that still applies to this day because a lot of the tools for chasing submarines and other things, listening, um, are still have a high classification and also the cameras. So it was, it was quite difficult to get all the stories. I couldn't get all the stories I wanted uh, just because of security. I wanted, for example, to tell a bit more about the Falklands. Uh, but again, uh, the 30-year rule comes up next year, uh, 
comes up next year and hopefully we'll be allowed to tell a bit more i was gonna say don't tell us anything now tony you might you might get you might, you might disappear yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. i hate to get into I, trouble i wish i knew <laughs> they saw active duty didn't they the falklands afghanistan and the first gulf war as well Yes, of course. Um, we're talking about Afghanistan first. They, they were in the reconnaissance role there. There was the R1s, which I touched on, which I haven't met, been able to get the story of what they actually did. But then there was the uh, the, the MR uh, the, the the MR2s, and uh, they went down to Ascension Islands, and then they were able to um, actually, with flight refueling, which was absolutely key, uh, fly all the way down to the Falklands and then track all the way back up the Argentinian coast, um, listening, um, having special listening equipment in order to find out what the Argentinians were doing. Of course, it only worked because of flight refueling. Flight refueling really made the aircraft. It was installed in 19 days at the start of the Falkland War, because before the Falkland War, there was no, uh, it didn't have flight refueling. Flight refueling, in my view, made the aircraft, but funnily enough, it was flight refueling that caused the eventual demise of the aircraft. Now, you've already mentioned the search and rescue capability, but in the book, there's a fantastic chapter ab- about the successes there and, 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 a, and a very lengthy part about the Piper Alpha oil rig disaster of 1988. Talk us through that, Tony. The account of that was absolutely first class, written by a chap called Joe Kennedy. And I tried to <laughs> I tried to make it shorter and say to my publisher, but it was so good, he covers all the aspects of it. Uh, but again, it's the key point of acting as an air traffic control center there, bringing all the, uh, bringing the helicopters in, bringing the boats in and deciding how many helicopters it would be safe to have at the time and where the boats could go and and the captain of the aircraft you actually got a, a decoration for it and the, and the navigators had to decide exactly who did what a very responsible without those um without, without the nimrod controlling what was happening there would have been a much greater loss of life on Piper Alpha, they did an absolutely splendid job, and of course, there's no we'd have no equivalent. Now. As we mentioned um, earlier on, they've they've been decommissioned, and you know the government has, has cancelled them. There's some pictures of well, quite famous pictures now, aren't they? I think you know, everyone everyone <laughs> saw them on the on the news at the time of them. You know the aerial shots of them breaking the Nimrod up. I mean, how did you feel when when you saw those pictures? Oh, I, oh, I was heartbroken. I mean, what people you know politics come to this always come into this. Uh, the crews were training. Um, at the time when it was cancelled, they were all, they were they were flying the airplane. Um, I actually was giving a talk on that very day, October the nineteenth, when the project was cancelled, next to Kinloss. And uh, the following morning, I went on to Kinloss and I flew the one the simulators, most modern simulators, the most modern equipped aircraft. And uh, there was a uh, there's a, the rear aircraft had simulator as well. Everything was ready. The crews had be the crews were there. Kinloss was completely prepared, and so it's absolutely heartbreaking. You can imagine on that particular day to hear that it was cancelled when everything was ready, and of course, um, as always on these occasions, stories were put out on how many years it would take to make the aircraft operational. But what people don't understand is that when an aircraft first goes into service, it's never a hundred percent capable. It's always been developed. It will have a certain capability. Where it goes into service and gradually that capability will be extended but of course um, uh, the politicians uh, listening to what they were told were said oh it's going to take years to and cost billions to do it but any aircraft as i said it's any new aircraft 
it's always like that. And at the time that it was cancelled, I think there was nothing to equal it. Uh, and uh, it, it's, it's heartbreaking that it was cancelled. Well, we can uh, relive its glories in your book. Uh, like I said, it's a, it's a great read. Uh, Tony Blackman is the author, Nimrod, Rise and Fall, uh, and it's available now. And thanks for talking to us, Tony. It's a real pleasure. And Tony's got into the Christmas spirit by very kindly giving us two copies of the book for you to win. To stand a chance of winning, what we'll do is pick someone at random from our Twitter and our Facebook followers. So if you're not liking us on Facebook, please do go and like us. If you're not following us on Twitter, you need to do that as well. Follow us right now. We're at facebook.com slash Flaps Podcast. And on Twitter, we are at Flaps Podcast. Flaps. In the air. Everywhere. Still to come, pilot gift ideas and the best celebrity pilot ever. Now, what are you doing New Year's Eve? Uh, I think I'll probably be getting drunk and watching Jules Holland. And let's be honest, that's probably the best way to watch Jules Holland is drunk. It make, makes the pain more bearable. What are you doing? I, Elliot, will be staying sober and going to bed at nine. Why? Well, I'm going flying New Year's Day and... Oh. You don't want to be flying with a hangover now, do you? No, Captain Sensible, you don't. Uh, but where to fly on New Year's Day? Uh, here's a couple of ideas for you. First of all, on the line is Laura Hughes. She's one of the managers of Compton Abbas Airfield in Dorset. Yeah, OK, I'll endorse it. It's brilliant. <laughs> hey! No, in Dorset, <laughs> the county. Uh, she's on the line now. Hello, Laura. Hello. Um, one, of the, one of the managers, because obviously it's a family business, isn't it? It is. So yeah. there's lots of you. Yeah, so my sister and I are managers now, um, taking over from my mum and dad, who are trying to retire. <laughs> when you say trying, it's not going well then, it's, no? It's not that successful, <laughs> no. We just keep getting busier, unfortunately. Well, that's so good. We have to keep coming back to work. Darn those customers. I know. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, don't, don't, don't worry about it, don't complain. And hopefully you want a few of them to fly in on New Year's Day, yeah? We do. We would love lots of you to fly in on New Year's Day. Um, we've had lots of successful fly-ins in previous years. So um, come and see us. We've got lots of nice food and drink for you. Um, and we've also got our new fuel available. New fuel? New fuel? Yes. What, what have you invented there, then? <laughs> um, it's also cheaper as well. Oh, really? Well, um, we're interested now. Yeah. Is, it, is it called Abgas? Um, it, it's the <laughs> UL91 version. Um, so we're actually selling it for £1.79, which is inclusive of VAT. So that is quite a bit cheaper than the 100LL is at the moment. Very good. Absolutely. Yeah. That was worth it just for that. Because, I mean, you, Mark, you've flown before on New Year's Day. You flew somewhere and there was nothing going on, didn't you? I went, it was dead. I went somewhere which I shan't name last, yeah, last New Year's Day and got there. Everything was shut. The cafe was shut. The office was shut. It was it was freezing cold and nothing to do, which is why we want to know if we fly to Compton Abbas this year, it'll be a warm welcome, literally. There will be, exactly. We'll make sure the heating's on for you. Oh, at least, that's good. I'm <laughs> fuelled by your new cheap fuel as well, so... Yes, good. exactly. Uh, when you say there's going to be lots of nice food, please tell me there's no turkey leftovers. There won't be. Good. We're Sorry. all sick of turkey by New Year, so that's We know, good. we know, yeah. We'll have lots of other nice things for the New Year. And um, just very quickly, um, we, we must mention this. You've done a calendar, haven't you, at Compton Abbas Airfield? Yes. Tell us about that. Um, it's basically, the idea for it was to raise money for the Dorset and Somerset Air Ambulance. So we thought we would do a Compton Girls calendar, which is on sale for £10. Which girls are in the calendar? Um, all the girls are either staff members or pilots or students that are learning with us at the moment. Um, it's a 
decent calendar. <laughs> well, the one picture I've seen, you all, you all look thoroughly decent. However, I must I must admit, I don't think I would let you service my engine because the one girl looked like she was looking at doing a lipstick in the mirror rather than anything else. That's me. I'm Is that sorry. you? <laughs> right. Okay. Well, I'm sorry. You're not going. You're not going anywhere near my magnetos. Okay. <laughs> That's all right. We'll leave that to the professionals. <laughs> yeah. No, it's very good. It's it's a cracking calendar. And as you said, if it's for charity, that's a brilliant course. How much is one of those? It's £10, and all of that goes to the Dorset and Somerset Air Ambulance. Good, so, good um, Christmas present. Yeah, they are, they're selling really well, actually. So And they do make great Christmas presents if you're stuck for what to buy. How do we get one, uh, You Laura? can either order them online at Abbasair. Um, or you can give us a call, we can send one out to you, or even better, you can come up and see us and we'll give you a signed version of the calendar as well. Oh, look at you all showbiz, <laughs> signed. <laughs> we're, we're famous It's now, like we're so. talking to Beyonce. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Beyonce of Dorset. Um, so, listen, um, if people want to come along to the fly-in as well, do they need to, is it, is it prior permission and all that? Or? Yes, please, if you could all um, PPR beforehand, um, and then we just know how many of you we can say hello to fabulous so, yeah uh, well good luck with it all hope it's good thank you very much and happy christmas you too thank you okay that's the southwest of england sorted out on january the first let's see what happens if you want to fly the other way towards the east on january the second uh, on the line is matthew wilkins who runs old buckingham old buck in norfolk hi matt hi hi how are you all right thank you how are you not bad thanks not bad so your big flying over new year is uh, is january the second that's right yeah we, we originally and we apologize to all the magazines we originally we put down january the first but we worked out the second being a bank holiday probably uh fits a little bit better with the families and so on very good it's good just, thinking it's just great to know airfields are open because you can fly you know fly for hours and find nowhere to land on january the first <laughs> good planning <laughs> well this is the whole thing i mean you know an airfield is is here and it, it has all its operational stuff and everything else and the idea of shutting it down one month in 12 is just ludicrous um, you know, most people are off around Christmas and the New Year period, so why on earth should the airfields, which is a leisure activity, not be open? It seems daft. Uh, and what else have people got to do on January the 2nd? I mean, you can't go shopping. No, that's very true. Uh, you've got other stuff going on all over the festive period, haven't you? Well, we do. I mean, I, I've taken over fairly recently. I mean, people may have seen in the, the, the trade press and in the, the general press, obviously, old buck, um, back at the beginning of August when I took over, it was very, very much under the threat of closure. Things weren't going too well. And we've been, uh, with the help of all the volunteers here, turning things around. So um, one of the things that's obvious to me is that you know, it, things should be going on all the time. We have a membership. They should really have something to keep them diverted and at the airfield. So we had our CFI give a talk uh, a few weeks ago. We had an absolute capacity crowd for that. Um, so on January the 6th, we have Ken Wallace of Autogyro fame. I should say Wing Commander Ken Wallace of Autogyro fame. He did Little Nelly in the Bond film. Oh, um, right. Uh, right. He only lived twice. Um, a extraordinary character, uh, a mine of all information you could possibly want if it's airborne, um, and a hugely popular man, and he's coming, we're very pleased to t tell everyone, on January the 6th. Um, and then there'll be another talk, uh, we've got a guy called Gary Reed, very nice and great supporter of the airfield, talking about building his sports biplane a month after that. Um, and we basically, we have a talk once a month, and we have a fly-in once a month, and potentially the return of the air show here as well in June. So there's plenty going on over Christmas. We spoke to Laura from Compton Abbas. They've got a calendar. Have you got a calendar, Matt? 
Uh, we no, no, no. <laughs> Can I get a picture of you in just a tight vest f- fiddling with my I, engine? I don't, I don't think anybody needs to see that. <laughs> I, I can't persuade most people to see that, even if they're um, in a relationship with me. So, what, quite, quite how it would help the airfield to make everyone feel physically well, yeah. ill, I don't know. We, we, we're just throwing these ideas out to help the GA it, community, it, but it, you know. Okay, but I mean, even so, you know, I'm, I'm about the youngest person around here, and I'm, you know, I'm past it. So, if people want to come to your uh, your flying, is it is it prior permission? Uh, it, it is, well, ideally, yes, because obviously, you know, we can sort of gauge numbers and be able to give them a bit more information. But that prior, prior permission thing, it can be literally tap us out an email as you're leaving sort of stuff oh good excellent so basically yeah you know a little bit of warning pick up the phone send an email airfield at oldbuck or ats at oldbuck.com um and um you know just come really well listen great to speak to you and happy christmas and to you and and yeah thanks very much and anytime you want to find out about how our calendar isn't progressing (laughs) just give me a call well we might come down we might bring some vests with us and we can all pose Oh, God. We'll bring that's, Laura instead from Compton Abbas. That sounds like a good idea. Okay, there you are. That's a plan. Flaps are mixtures always rich. It's time for the man with too much white facial hair, a big fat belly, who flies around the world bringing joy and cheer wherever he goes. Is it Santa? No, it's Pablo Mason with his Christmas message. It's Mason's Minute. Well, actually, it's Mason's Mistletoe Minute. It's Christmas. I'm a little bit grumpy having just filed an air miss against some fat bloke flying through the sky with no lights and four reindeers at the front. Um, But I'm home, I'm safe, I'm in front of a roaring fire with a nice large brandy which I intend to enjoy whilst you listen to a Christmas tale. I've flown a lot of aeroplane types at a lot of times of the year and of course Christmas time is when you remember sorties, passenger flights, or even social flights that you've done at Christmas time. Now, one that does spring to mind, and I think it would have been the Christmas of 1979, when I had volunteered to fly on Christmas Day. We were operating in Northern Ireland, and the troubles of Northern Ireland, which I'd like to think are long gone, were at their height in the 1970s. And Christmas Day was very much like any other day for the operations. We used to try and brighten things up for the troops and a lot of the helicopters were fitted with Christmas lights. Um, Very easy to do, the aeroplane system, a 24-volt system, and um, just put a few wires between bulbs and uh, uh, jolly festive it looked too. But on this particular Christmas Day, it hadn't been a terribly good day for anyone. We'd been supporting troops on the ground as they were doing VCPs, which were vehicle checkpoints. On this particular Christmas day, at around 11 o'clock in the morning, uh, the Land Rover went over a mine and um, the guys were no more. We picked them up and we went back to base feeling very sorry for what had gone before. And as I approached the officer's mess, a little devil came into my head and I pushed the cyclic lever forward which cants the aeroplane forward and I raised the collective lever to add power and at about 130 miles an hour I flew straight at the officer's mess bar pulling up 
about a microsecond before the last second because I actually hit the ridge tiles of the mess bar with the tail wheel of the helicopter. Now, that's not something I'm particularly proud of. The guys on the ground thought it was fantastic. But um, I've not done anything like that before. I've not done anything like that since, I don't think. No, that's not true. But um, we'll leave those for other tales. But um, that was my Christmas Day. The Christmas Day morning was a terribly sad affair. The lunchtime was a stupid affair. And the afternoon was spent on the roof replacing about half a dozen ridge tiles. And the next day, supported by the rest of my squadron, I got incredible, um, what's the word? Well, it is support, as everyone denied that any such event had uh, ever happened. Merry Christmas, everyone. Fly safely, especially the big guy in the red suit. Thanks, Pablo. That's never a minute. Right, let's keep the Christmas spirit going. We've all been good aviators this year. Have we, really? What about that time you nearly landed on the market at North Weald Airfield? I was a passenger. Whatever you like. But you're right, let's have a think about some top gifts ideas for pilots this Christmas. On the line now is Sebastian Pooley of the world-famous Pooleys with some great ideas for us. Hi, Sebastian. Hi there, how are you doing? Yeah, very well. Welcome to Flaps and Happy Christmas, I suppose. And a very happy Christmas to you too. (laughs) Now, you're obviously part of the Pooleys dynasty. Well, if you want to call it that, absolutely. <laughs> how, just, just in case people don't know, I mean, how, how long has the company been going for? Uh, Pooley's was established in 1957 by my father, Robert Pooley. Um, he uh, was in the RAF as an engineer, and he realised that uh, you know he was he learned he was learning to fly, and he realised that people were buying their equipment from Germany or the US. Um, and so he started moonlighting, doing a bit of uh, manufacturing on the side while he was uh, after he left the RF, he was with De Havilland, and Pooley's really evolved from that. And what was the first thing that the company really got famous for? Um, he used to um, renovate uh, the old Dalton flight computers. Um, you know, he'd, he'd buy them in, renovate them, and, and then sell them on. Uh, and then he expanded it from there to doing charts. Uh, he realised that people had to buy their charts from uh, Stamford's, for instance, in London. Um, so he bought a few from Stamford's and, uh, and then started selling them on. Um, and then he started manufacturing kneeboards uh, uh, while he was still uh, on the night shift at de Havilland, would you believe? <laughs> um, and, um, and it all really started from there. The, the fly guide came along in 1962, so five years after uh, that got underway, after he sort of started, as I say, uh, doing various bits and pieces. Um, and uh, he was doing, he, went, he traveled with his future wife to um, the Swiss Watch Rally. Um, and he was talking to people, and they said, well, yeah, we really do need a flight guide for, for Europe, and that's how it started. The, it, it started as a flight guide for the whole of Europe before it eventually was consolidated to uh, to the UK. Well, well, this is the 50th anniversary, isn't it, of course, of the it flight guide. Indeed, we'll, yeah. we'll come on to that in just a minute. You, you did mention there in your brief potted history uh, flight computers. Were, were you the people who invented the dreaded whiz wheel? <laughs> Nothing dreaded about it. <laughs> oh, come <laughs> on. Oh, Sebastian. Can I, actually, if I send you mine back, can I have a refund, please? Absolutely. Lifetime, well, not a refund, but they do have a lifetime guarantee, So, uh, um, uh, as do all the products that we manufacture. But, um, no, we weren't the first people to invent it, but we did uh, we did work very closely, especially with uh, our CRP5, which is the, the instrument that the commercial pilots use, um, with Oxford and the CAA uh, to uh, to perfect it. Or it wasn't Oxford; it was CSE at the time. Um, and uh, the CRP5, uh, as you see it today, is a result of those early you know, those early sort of uh, collaborations. Um, and that CRP5 is used by all commercial flight training organisations uh, throughout Europe and. 
uh, around the world as well. Well, I still hate it. Sorry. Well, fair enough, fair <laughs> enough, yeah. Um, I won't tell you what some people call it. Does it involve the letters C, R and P? Uh, yes, it certainly <laughs> does involve the letters C, R and P, but I can tell you that those letters actually uh, stand for Computer Robert Pooley. Yeah, obviously. Well, what what, el- what else? else? <laughs> yeah, of course. Now, um, the, the, the guide, of course, the Pooley's Guide, which um, has kind of become synonymous, really. I mean, obviously, it's all the airfields and all the landing plates and everything, but, you know, it, it, you don't even need to explain what it is. It's called the Pilot's Guide, but people just go, get the Pooley's out the back of the plane, don't absolutely. they, Absolutely, absolutely. It's become that generic name, a bit like Hoover, I think. Um, and uh, yeah, people say that even if they're not even referring to a Pooley's Guide, you know, they still call it a Pooley's. It's, uh, it's fascinating. So 50 years it's been going. How has it changed in 50 years? Well, the original guide was just uh, text, the 1962 edition, uh, which we, you know, we have a couple of copies remaining. Um, uh, it just had text. It was just a, a text-only uh, flight guide. And then uh, air, airfield diagrams crept in in 1964-65, and they were all hand-drawn uh, by Robert himself. Uh, he used to go around the airfield and he would he would mock up the drawing. Um, then in 1999, it was then uh, converted into colour. Uh, and in fact, we put ours into colour before the uh, the CA even put their own AIP into colour. So hmm. so we like to think of ourselves slightly pioneering in that department. Have the number of, of aerodromes you featured dropped or increased? I guess they've dropped in 50 years, haven't they? Uh, they have. Yeah, a lot of a lot of airfields, uh, old RAF bases get closed, get developed. Um, but we have seen recently, uh, especially with the changes in the licensing laws, that a lot of uh, new airfields have sprung up, grass strips especially. Mm. Um, and because you can now train, uh, do PPL training from an unlicensed field, um, a lot of people um, uh, have set up their own airfields and, and are training from them. And, and also, are you still selling as many as you used to sell? Because obviously, all this information is now online, isn't it? With the advent of uh, you know some of the, the flight planning uh, bits of kit that you take in the plane with you. Do, do people still need the poolies? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, at its peak in the mid '80s, uh, when GA was, uh, uh, as I say, was at its peak. I think we were selling about twelve thousand copies a year. Um, that has dropped to below 10,000 now, but that's still a healthy number, um, especially considering that GA is struggling quite a bit these days. And, you, and your book's never going to run out of batteries, is it? Well, book's never going to run out of batteries, absolutely. Um, but we are looking to, well, we are at the moment waiting for it to come out on the iPad. Um, it's with Apple at the moment, and uh, it should be in the App Store uh, within the next week. So there'll, there'll be an app for that then? There will be an app for that, Fantastic. absolutely. Now, obviously Christmas, fast approaching. Yeah, indeed. Um, we'd like uh, your top three biggest sellers, obviously, uh, you know, if, if people want to drop hints for Christmas, some of our, our listeners, uh, what, what things should they be asking Santa for this year then? Well, uh, it's got to be the Pooley's Flight Guide. I mean, that's, uh, that's number one on most people's uh, wish lists. And uh, uh, we're offering getting, uh, getting requests to, to gift wrap them so, uh, and to send them in an anonymous uh, parcel so uh, you know, the husband and wife don't, uh, don't know what's in it. Um, so certainly the Pooley's Flight Guide is one. Uh, the isn't, there a, isn't there a chance to win as well with, the, with this one? So you could, well, you, could, you could get an extra bonus, couldn't there you, this is. year? Um, you, there is a chance this year. It being the 50th edition, uh, we thought we'd go down the, the Willy Wonka route, uh, if you like, <laughs> and we've, put a gold, we've hidden a golden ticket one golden ticket in one flight guide this year um, and whoever finds that golden ticket win a week in a Scottish castle uh, for themselves and up to 11 friends nice. so it's um, yeah um, it, it's quite a prize um, and it's a, it's a it's a very romantic place very very beautiful up there very good okay so that's that's number one what else have you got absolutely um, uh, a little bit uh, uh, cheaper is our Pooley's Pilot's Diaries um, uh, obviously they come out every year um, and they're a great stocking filler and how do they differ as, as pilots' diaries? What's in them? 
Um, we have a, a 32-page section at the front which details, it's a sort of mini uh, flight guide in a sense, it details all the basic information on UK airfields. Uh, there's also a mini log, so you know, if you go flying, rather than having to take a log book with you uh, and sort of fill in in each stop, you can fill in the mini log. And, and I'll, tell you how, I'll tell you how it differs more importantly, it says pilot's diary on the front, so you can leave it lying around and go, look everyone, <laughs> I'm a pilot. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, and what else? I think our third gift for this Christmas. Okay, well we've uh, we've got a, quite a big range now of, uh, of t-shirts, uh, key rings, uh, and, and they're very popular at this. Which time also of says year. I'm a pilot. It, well, absolutely. <laughs> you know things like uh, you know proud to be a pilot. I am a pilot. You know, um, trust me, I'm a pilot. Um, you know that sort of line. And of course uh, the obvious one, which everyone has, which is removed before flight. So uh, that's always popular. <laughs> Very good. Well, listen, Santa, it's lovely to speak to you. <laughs> and um, uh, and listen, we're going to be cheeky. Could we have one of the, the books to give away? Could we have one of your brilliant guides Absolutely. to give away? Absolutely. We'll give you our loose leaf, and uh, we've done a special edition binder for this 50th edition. So we'll make sure you get uh, get one of those. And is there is there a chance? Do we have the same chance as everyone else? It could have the golden ticket in it? Absolutely. Oh. It's, I, I have hidden it personally in a box uh, <laughs> on a pallet in the warehouse, uh, and everyone's been trying to find it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but uh, but it is hidden. So yeah, absolutely. Your guide could be the one. Before we go, Sebastian, um, what uh, what gear would Santa get off you this year? <laughs> I love it. Um, well, uh, what can I say? Santa's been a, around for many many years, bringing joy to us all every Christmas morning. Um, so he's probably about the only person who still knows how to use a whiz wheel, oh, I reckon. He probably <laughs> is. Well, there we go. Absolutely. Well, it must work because he manages to get to everyone, doesn't absolutely, he? So absolutely. Fair play. All right, so new whiz wheel for Santa from Paulis. Listen, thank you very much for talking to us and happy Christmas. Happy Christmas to you all. So if you want to win that copy of the new Paulie's Flight Guide, which might contain the golden ticket, remember, all you have to do is email us the answer to this question. In which year was the first Paulie's UK Flight Guide published? In which year was the first Poolies UK Flight Guide published? Email your answer to mail at flapspodcast.com. That's mail at flapspodcast.com. Flaps, it's cold outside. No wonder they're... <laughs> now look, freeze, freeze, ailerons. Freeze, 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 oh I don't know. Flaps, it's cold outside. No wonder they're freeze ailerons. Okay, it's time for the moment we've all been waiting for. What, is it the end of the podcast already? No, it's the best ever celebrity pilot ever we've ever had on the podcast, ever. What's wrong with you? You're getting really excited. I know, it's because he's here. He's got a massive beard. Is it Richard Branson? He flies millions of miles. It is Richard Branson. No, it's this man. Ho, 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 ho. It's Richard Branson with laryngitis. No, you fool. It's Father Christmas. Father Christmas. So, Santa, tell us, how on earth do you plan to fly around the world and visit all the good boys and girls in one night? That's one hell of a flight plan. Well, I must admit, boys, it was a bit of a pain with the old whiz wheel, but last year, Mrs. Claus bought me Sky Demon. But I also use VORs. You use VORs, Santa, like Daventry, Stornoway, or Ockham? No, VORs. Very old reindeer. Ho, ho, ho. With a heavily laden sleigh, Santa, what's your takeoff run like? Well, I start in Greenland, but by the time I've rotated, I'm just north of Leicester. Ho, ho, ho. How many horsepower is your sleigh, Santa? Well, it's not horses, you silly boy. It's reindeer. And it's nine reindeer powered. 
They're magnificent creatures. They're naturally aspirated, and they run on chestnuts and sprouts. But you don't want to be behind them when the afterburners are on. It gets a bit whiffy then. Ho, ho, ho. Have you ever had any near misses, Santa? Well, yes. There was that time when I was nearly caught emptying my sack at number 33. But I got away with it. Ho, ho, ho. Now, you fly at some of the coldest times of the year. How do you handle icing conditions? I don't know. Mrs. Claus makes all the cakes in our house. Ho, ho, ho. Thanks, Santa. Happy Christmas. Happy Christmas, Santa. Nice to meet you. Happy Christmas, boys, and everyone who listens to Flaps. Ho, ho, ho. Well, what a celebrity pilot. I think it's fair to say we'll be hard-pushed to get anyone better than that. Mm, That's right. So that's it for this edition. We're back in 2012. Uh, If you want all the competition details, you can find them on the website. It's flapspodcast.com. Do get in touch with any comments or stories. To email us, we are mail at flapspodcast.com. And as always, thanks very much for listening. Have a great Christmas. And a flappy new year. We're ready for departure. See you next month. Thanks for listening to Flaps. Ho, ho, ho.